Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez. In 2016, civic, community, and faith leaders in the city of Davis decided to come together and find a solution to a mounting crisis. The number of people experiencing homelessness in our state has only grown over the years, but it's grown sharply since the start of the pandemic. And Davis was no exception. After years of planning and collaboration, the doors opened this week on a unique approach to better serve Davis' unhoused community. Paul's Place celebrated its grand opening yesterday on H Street in central Davis, becoming what's believed to be the first facility of its kind in California. The four-story multi-purpose building is designed to both shelter and provide essential services to those who are at risk or are experiencing homelessness. Joining us now to share the story of Paul's Place, what makes it a -a one-of-a-kind resource, and how it hopes to inspire other communities to follow its lead is Bill Pride, Executive Director for Davis Community Meals and Housing and a founder of Paul's Place. Bill, welcome to Insight. Great. Thank you, Mike. Great to have you here today. Can you tell us the backstory? What drove you to create this space to help those experiencing or at risk of experiencing homelessness? Well, the property at 1111 H Street was something we had owned since 1994. You know, we were an organization that started back in 1991. And after we founded the board of directors at the time, the volunteer board of directors worked with the city of Davis to buy a property there that had some homes there that was transferred and transposed into a uh, day shelter resource center and also a transitional housing program. And we'd had that building for many years. We'd done some remodeling and some other things that happened. And, but after about 25 years of use, it was in really bad shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was overused. It was basically a residential piece of property that was getting used for 50, 60, 70, 80 people a day, sometimes mm-hmm. more. Wow. And so it kind of had aging issues and facility issues. And so my goal some years ago was to try to figure out a way to kind of rebuild the property and kind of do the same program there in uh, a better facility that had more bathrooms and other facilities that we really had a low amount of. And so I worked, I was met with some folks in the city of Davis, and the city of Davis at the time had been speaking with Sutter Health to who at the time was starting something called the Getting to Zero program, which was a funding opportunity with providing matching funds to do some innovative projects involving homeless and needy folks in uh, the Sacramento Valley area. Mm-hmm. And we got together uh, with them and the city, another group in Davis called Dove. And out of that, we came up with the plan to kind of knock down what I had there and rebuild, and rebuild it with a new facility called Paul's Place. Now, that Paul's Place has specific meaning. Your father... Uh, who passed in 2003, was named Paul. Yes. Can you tell us more about him and why he became, or rather the building became his namesake? Yes. Well, my dad uh, my dad suffered from many of the issues that I find with homeless people. And just mm-hmm. and the backstory to that is that he was a World War II vet. Uh, he turned 18 in 1944 and uh, enlisted and some like six months after that, right after Christmas of 1944, he was sent over to Europe and uh, was shipped right to the front lines in this mm. little town called Haddon in the uh, Battle of the Bulge, basically. I think he was there probably three or four days and ha- was in a battle. He, him and a uh, majority of the folks in his regiment got captured. Mm. And he spent the last six months of the war in, a, in Stalag 4B and... Uh, in June of 1945, his camp was liberated by the Russian troops moving in from the east. And, uh, you know, his experience there and his war experience, he basically would, you'd say now he had PTSD. Right. 
But they didn't have that term then. They didn't have that term. I've looked at letters from the VA back then because he became 100% disabled because of that. Mm -hmm. And the letters described as extreme nervousness. That was the term they used for, you know, what he had at the point. Right. And so, you know, he basically spent the rest of his life with that. And he also, unfortunately, as a lot of folks do with mental health problems, turned to drinking and became an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And... Remarkably, sometime back in the late 1970s, something happened to him that uh, caused him to stop and totally turn his life around. Wow. And the simple thing was, it was he was arrested for drunk driving. Hmm. And he spent uh, four hours in a jail facility in a little town in southeastern Massachusetts. And uh, whatever happened there just kind of changed him. This was the rock bottom that we hear about with alcoholics. The rock bottom, yes. And he never drank a drop again the rest of his life until he passed away. Wow. So that's, and so Paul's place in my mind honors some the idea that everybody who suffers from any of these issues, which a lot of the folks we deal with who are homeless and mm-hmm. mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, there is a spot that will get them to change. And so it's meant to be a place of healing for them. The origins of the project can be traced back to 2016 when the Davis community realized that really needed to come together to help the growing number of people living unsheltered on that city's streets. How does that need in Davis grown or evolved over the past seven years? I imagine it's gotten far worse. It's gotten worse. I mean, I think if I if I can just give you some statistics, I, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, probably around 2015, 2016, there's probably about 120 by last year, there was 181 when we did the last homeless census mm-hmm. in tw- January of 2022. So the problem has grown, but the problem has grown everywhere. I mean, as, as anybody yeah. knows, yeah. I mean, you just drive around Sacramento, pretty much any town in the Sacramento Valley right now, you're going to see homeless folks at uh, places where you never saw them before. And uh, so it's the problem's only grown. For those who haven't seen pictures or renderings of Paul's place, can you take us on a little verbal tour about how the building's set up, how it's organized? Sure. You know, we, I think the innovative thing about Paul's Place is that we put a variety of programs all in the same building. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been doing for many years is what's called a day shelter resource center, which is a drop-in place for folks who are homeless. Uh, we have places for folks to take showers, bathroom facilities, clothing, food, you know, place for them to wash their clothes, uh, And they can also talk with our staff, and we can provide a whole range of different services, try to help them with housing, uh, get medical appointments, mental health treatment, uh, you know, a whole range of things. And uh, that's that's basically the first floor of the facility. The second floor is our transitional housing program. And the nice thing about our program that's changed from what we had previously is that we used to have a congregate facility, and basically we had four adults in a basically a 10 by 10 bedroom sleeping in bunk beds. Not a great way to kind of have a program. Right. So our new facility limits to 10 people, but they're all getting their own individual bedrooms. So my hope is we're going to have folks having better outcomes as they go through the program. And, and you know, the program's basically meant to have folks trans- transition from being homeless to being housed by helping with employment whatever other issues we need to address, life skills issues, and hopefully get them into either employment or some kind of income and uh, move them into some form of permanent housing somewhere. What were some of the biggest challenges in trying to design that kind of all-in-one concept? Really, it's kind of just mixing different populations at different stages of their lives. 
You know, I mean, I, you know, the, the third and fourth floor, they are going to have the permanent supportive housing units. So we're going to have people actually moving off the streets into permanent housing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the difficulty is just making sure that, you know, they all have a safe and stability. And that's, you know, really our goal is making sure the folks in those units are safe and stable. And, you know, I mean, we've, we found we're doing what's called a housing first model, if you're familiar with that term. And, uh, you know, basically we're going to have folks moving directly from the streets into the housing there. And uh, yeah, that means they come in with whatever issues they may be having already in the streets. And so, you know, we, we find, because we do have other permanent supportive housing units in Davis at different facilities, that usually by moving the housing, getting some safety, some stability, uh, you know, get them to a point where they're kind of off the streets and not dealing with all the stresses they have out there with all kinds of issues they suffer from. Uh, that uh, usually I, we find that their usage decreases. Uh, they're able to get their mental health more stable, and they can probably be, be a better community member at that point. Architects from all over the area, Northern California, have come to see Paul's Place, and they're giving very effusive praise for what they're seeing. Tell us a little bit more about the local architect who designed Paul's Place and how influential she was in developing that literal and figurative blueprint. Yeah. You know, we, you know, when we first started discussions, we had a pretty large group of folks in the city of Davis discussing it, and she was a member of the Dove Board, and that's called Davis Opportunity Village. And, uh, you know, she listened to what I talked about as far as, you know, what we would need to do to kind of work with the different populations. And, you know, she came up with a very, very beautiful building. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, there's different ingress and egress for folks at different stages in there so that... You know, if you're a third and fourth floor resident, you're not going to be in the second floor and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the rooms for the perimeter supportive housing, they're called micro housing, which is at 300 square feet. But they're very light. They, they're all self-contained. Um, you know, there's some great components she put in it to kind of make it feel like a, a real home for folks. And that's really what we aim for is to make folks feel like, you know, they're invested in a nice place to stay. Uh, they're, you know, getting services they need if they need services and that we try to maintain them in their housing for as long as they'd like. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're talking with Bill Pride of Davis Community Meals and Housing about Paul's Place, an innovative solution to serve the city's unhoused community. The project broke ground in June of 2021, but the pandemic dramatically increased the costs of lumber and labor and other construction materials. How were you able to keep the project alive despite what I imagine were a lot of unexpected cost increases? Well, when we started this project, one of the, one of the real great uh, innovations here was that we were actually trying to do this all with private funding. You know, the Sutter Seed money was $2.5 million that we could match with private funding. And we also got a big grant up right at the beginning from a place called Partnership Health Plan, who gave us $750,000. And then we worked with the community of Davis and raised money from the local citizenry and raised pretty much almost almost $3 million from them. Mm. But by the time that uh, we were ready and got our permit and everything else to start construction, COVID was kind of, had really affected the materials costs, labor costs, and other things. And, you know, at the time to to fix the budget deficit we had due to those increases, you were able to work with the city of Davis and also Yolo County to receive American Rescue Plan funding, and both of them gave us equally about a million dollars. 
I think everybody is familiar with the term NIMBY. It's an acronym for Not In My Backyard, and NIMBYism can be a major obstacle in projects like these. Did you get pushback from residents or other members of the community? One, I think one of the reasons why it was discussed to use the property we already had there was it's it's not the most desirable part of Davis. It's right next to the railroad tracks, and the railroad goes by there. The freight trains go by there pretty regularly, so there is some noise attached to it. Uh, and we had been there for many years. I mean, we had the piece of property we built Paul's Place on. We had our facility there before. The neighbors were familiar with us. The neighbors were kind of familiar with the folks coming and going there. And I think we've always tried to be responsible neighbors to everybody in the neighborhood to make sure that, you know, whatever impact that the folks we use our facilities, that we kind of minimize that to the best we can and work with them if they have any complaints or any issues. And so we, we really did not get a lot of negative feedback from the community. I mean, we had a little bit, but we went through the planning process and got approved with a unanimous vote. The city council was a unanimous vote. We didn't really have any major opposition to what we were doing there. And like I mentioned previously, I mean, we had, had a huge amount of community support to uh, you know, build a program. I, I know that some homeless advocates had questions about mixing people who are trying to stay sober with people who aren't, along with people who might be suffering from mental illness. How are you able to address their concerns? What measures will be in place to ensure the safety and well-being of these people and your staff? Yeah. That's that's always been a concern. I mean, that's that's an issue we've had to face ever since you know I got involved in homeless services twenty something years ago. Frankly, um, you know, it, it's 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 a very tricky proposition. Um, you know, the housing first model is you move folks directly in, so they could still be using, drinking, doing whatever drug of choice they're using. You know, the mental health issues. I, I really think the the key is having good staff who understand the issues and able to work with the, with the folks in your programs and work with them diligently and kind of keep on top of things. That's, that's the key to me. Yesterday was the grand opening. What does it mean to you personally to see this dream finally become a reality? You know, it was certainly a great celebration. I mean, we had, uh, we had a huge community turnout of probably 250, 300 people which as I kind of joked initially when I got up to give a little speech yesterday, I said, I'm not sure there's any place I know of I've ever seen having 300 people show up to celebrate opening a homeless facility. <laughs> that does not happen anywhere, frankly. True. Um, so, I mean, it was a nice celebration. I think the nice thing is to know that we've got a lot of community support for what we're doing there. And from the city council to the board of supervisors to the local citizens of Davis, uh, you know, we aim to kind of, you know, work our programs and make sure we run the facility in a very responsible manner, but also make sure we're also giving the services and, and, the, and the housing that's needed for the folks who are living homeless. Bill Pride's executive director for Davis Community Meals and Housing and founder of Paul's Place, the first of its kind building in Davis, providing shelter and services for those considered at risk or experiencing homelessness. Bill, thanks so much again for being here today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You can also read more about Paul's Place, see photos of the project right now at capradio.org. Up next, California's farm workers play a critical role in bringing the food we need to our dining tables. But a landmark study by UC Merced is revealing how thousands of them are experiencing severe chronic health issues and steep challenges accessing health care. We'll hear how farm worker health is impacting the state's most important industry and discuss solutions in improving the well-being of this disadvantaged workforce. 
You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, there is no debate. California is king of agriculture in the United States. According to California's Department of Food and Agriculture, more than a third of the country's vegetables and 75% of its fruits and nuts are grown right here in the Golden State. This economic engine of our state wouldn't be possible without the hundreds of thousands of farm workers who pick and package all the succulent fruits and crispy vegetables we crave. But an unprecedented study by researchers at the University of California, Merced, is pulling back the curtain on the lives and health of these farm workers, revealing how this disadvantaged workforce is experiencing chronic health issues and severe challenges accessing health care. Its survey of more than 1,200 farm workers throughout the state is considered one of the largest academic studies ever conducted on the health and well-being of farm workers. Joining us now to share some of the study's key findings and what it means for all Californians is Edward Flores, faculty director of UC Merced's Community and Labor Center, which conducted the study. And he's joined by Cesar Lara, executive director of the Monterey Bay Central Labor Council, one of the organizations that helped the university carry out the study. Edward and Cesar, welcome to Insight, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Edward, this study is being described as a landmark, one of the largest academic studies ever examining farm worker health. Can you tell more about how and why this study came to be and give our listeners a better idea of its depth and scope? Sure. Um, so the, uh, the UC Merced Farm Worker Health Study um, came about uh, uh, because it was uh, sponsored by the California Department of Public Health. Um, through a $1.5 million allocation from the state of California. Um, and the purpose of it was to study farm worker health as well as the social determinants of farm worker health. We um, created a community advisory board, which included um, 27 uh, organizations, uh, uh, leading uh, labor, community, um, environmental organizations uh, that serve farm workers that informed the development of the study across a two-year period. Cesar, members of your organization helped conduct some of these surveys. Would you tell us more about the Monterey Bay Labor Council and why it chose to partner with UC Merced in this study? Yeah, I, this study was very important for our community. So I'm, I represent union members in Monterey and Santa Cruz County. That includes the three union uh, farm Farm working unions, you know, the United Farm Workers that was started by Cesar Chavez, along with Teamsters and UFCW Local 5. So we were really happy to support it. And in particular, the United Farm Workers played a, uh, a role in collecting data and getting this information from our communities. So more than 1,200 farm workers throughout California participated in this survey. They were asked a wide range of health questions, from working conditions to physical and mental health and their ability to access health care. Edward, what are some of the key and most striking findings in this study? Well, we've known for some time now that um, the farm worker population is largely Latino, immigrant, non-citizen, undocumented that they live in uh, uh, large households um, that are low income, 
and that they have low rates of uh, health insurance coverage and low rates of healthcare utilization. None of that was contradicted in our report. Um, what was significant in our report um, was that uh, we asked questions about their health, but also their working conditions that have rarely or never been asked about um, in public health studies. So we found out that um, uh, there were high rates of uh, people with chronic conditions in our sample, um, uh, conditions um, you know, such as uh, depression, anxiety, um, diabetes, um, and, but we also ask questions about um, uh, uh, employer compliance with um, uh, with working standards such as the California heat standard, the wildfire standard, um, sanitation, uh, and access to drinking water on the job. And um, the findings uh, suggest that um, uh, that more could be done uh, to ensure employer compliance um, with workplace health and safety standards that previous research has told us it um, is related to, um, to health outcomes. Say, is there the same question? Anything in particular that jumps out at you in the findings of this report? Well, I, I think to start off, this report had no surprises in there. I think what, what it did show that the conditions for farm workers have gotten worse over time and the buying power of farm workers and just the rights at work with a high percentage of undocumented you know, community members that really hold up this industry, uh, they really lack the rights and protections. So this report was no surprise to us in the community, but it was a comprehensive study that really wrapped everything up to 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 show that we need to do some, some change in California. So in, in essence, Cesar, then more a confirmation of things that you've known were wrong for a long time. Well, definitely a confirmation and and, and definitely a call for action. I I, I think uh, times in, in history, you know, especially during COVID, we, we showed the importance of essential workers. And at critical levels, those essential workers were the ones that were uh, putting their life at risk to, you know, pick the, the, the fruits, you know, pick the vegetables that uh, all of us enjoy in this country and the world, to be honest. Edward, agriculture is a physically demanding, potentially dangerous industry. People work long hours under strenuous conditions. Almost half of the farm workers in that survey say they don't have health insurance. What are some of the biggest barriers they face in obtaining quality, affordable health care? The obstacles that farm workers face in accessing um, health care are complex. Um, during the time that we carried out the study towards the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, um, uh, a significant issue was access to health insurance coverage. Um, even as the state has made strides towards expanding um, and extending health insurance coverage to populations like undocumented workers, however, um, there still remain obst for other obstacles for farm workers um, in rural areas of, of the state um, there's less uh, infrastructure for healthcare um, uh, utilization. And so um, so we're going to be learning more as we analyze the findings of this report, um, you know, in the coming months and years. Uh, but just immediately, um, uh, one of the significant takeaways from, from our report is that both um, access to health insurance coverage, uh, but also um, healthcare utilization are, are both significant issues. You also specifically looked at women's health and reproductive health among farm workers. Tell me more about what you found there. 
Yes. Uh, so we looked at um, women's reproductive health, and uh, there were several questions that we asked in terms of um, uh, past um, birth outcomes. And we found um, high rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes among farm worker women who had ever given birth, um, rates of uh, preterm birth, um, low birth weight, uh, um, and uh, children born with birth defects that were higher than um, that of the general population. We also asked questions um, about uh, in, during a, a woman's last pregnancy, if they had been advised to stop working by their doctor, if, if they had still been working, and if a doctor had advised them to stop working, um, and how, how, at how many weeks they had been advised to stop working and when they stopped working. And we found a gap of about a month in between when a doctor had advised them uh, to stop working and when they actually stopped working on average. And I assume that was out of fear that they would lose income and their ability to ever work again. 59% of our sample um, said they did not have access to unemployment insurance, um, indicating that um, uh, they were probably undocumented because uh, it's undocumented workers that don't have access to unemployment insurance. And the economic safety net for undocumented workers um, is is much less than that of, um, of, of other workers. So, yeah, that could play a, a factor in the decisions people make about, um, you know, whether to stop working or, or to continue working. You know, a third of farm workers in your survey said they would be unwilling to file a report for not complying with workplace rules or regulations out of fear of retaliation. Were there also farm workers who declined to participate in the study out of those same fears? Um, I'm not. Uh, that's a good question, right? What, what was the, the rate of people that um, uh, that decided to participate in the survey? Um, I don't think we collected those metrics Um it's uh, usually with a convenient sample. Um, those aren't numbers that you collect uh, with random representative surveys. You, you might track that. Okay. So then let's go back to that third that say that they won't report hazardous conditions, violations of the law and regulations by their employers. Cesar, what are some protections you'd like to see for farm workers that they're currently lacking, given that what we have here is a situation where suppression is at play in terms of things that are illegal? Well, at, 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 at the beginning point, I think we need to realize that, you know, there's a lot of issues that many people in the policy world need to address at the national level. We need comprehensive immigration reform, you know, for, for every, you know, dollar spent on, you know, services for undocumented more, more, more than that dollar comes in it's holding up our 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 social safety nets and other things but you know one of the biggest things is that you know agricultural workers need professional wages and professional benefits you know caesar chavez when he was in the farm worker movement, he said being a farm worker is is a profession and if you need uh you know for that at the base level you need you know protections. And right now, because of, of the low wage that, you know, farm workers earn, the city pointed out that, you know, an average farm worker earns $21,915. And for many farm workers, they live in very expensive housing where they have to spend 60 or 70% of their salaries to 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 rent because the high percentages are, are, uh, are renters. In this study, 92% 
of those that you know took you know the study um you know were renters so at the base level it's connected to the master's hierarchy and need at the bottom level they're fearful to just have a job have shelter and have food on the table and so complaining about their working conditions, making sure they're not blacklisted, not just from that employer, but the industry is, is, is a fear. And on top of that, throw immigration status. So we need a rapid uh, focused approach to make sure that our most vulnerable workers in California are protected with many rights, not just at the state level, but at the national level. About a third of our farm workers live on the Central Coast. About 60% live in the San Joaquin Valley. Very different climates and, and geography. But are the challenges that these farm workers face relatively uniform? At, at the base level, they are. You know, and if if it's a hot day here on the Central Coast, especially with climate change, you know, this last summer we had days that that were very unusual for us here in the Salinas Valley, where we were at 105 degrees, and uh, and and really workers had to take shelter. But at, at the end, you know, the, the work of agriculture is very similar in in all the valleys that do agriculture. We might not have as many heat days as as the Central Valley does, but it doesn't mean that as outdoor workers, they they lack protections, and and especially with everything else that this study pointed out, uh, fear is 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 a major factor. But yes, you know most workers face the same challenges. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. We're speaking with Edward Flores with UC Merced and Cesar Lara with the Monterey-based Central Labor Council about a landmark study revealing the health challenges faced by California's farm workers. Edward, a majority of the surveys for this study were completed between September and December of 2021, a little more than a year after the start of the pandemic. What sort of challenges did the pandemic create for the research? Um. The, the research was carried out in person because of the nature of the questions that were asked that were highly sensitive. And so um, we took, uh, you know, precautions. We had uh, very extensive protocols for, um, you know, how to do attestations and, um, you know, provide uh, a sanitized space for um, conducting the interview that was in, um, in privacy. And I think, um, this is where the organizations that carried out the 1,242 interviews gets a lot of credit. It was um, the largest ever academic study of its kind in terms of the number of interviews, the length of the interviews. The interviews were two to four hours long. Um, they were conducted in six different languages. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The community advisory board um, organization members that, um, that conducted those interviews um, get a lot of credit for this landmark study. Cesar, the series of winter storms that hammered the state hit agriculture in Monterey County, where you are especially hard. According to the Farm Bureau over there, about 25,000 acres of farmland were flooded, $70 million in damage to that county's ag industry alone. How does this impact the farm workers, their ability to earn what money they do and their health? Well, you know, the storms faced a major challenge, especially for those community members that, you know, were flooded out. But, you know, the challenge right now is that a lot of the agricultural crops for this time period were washed out. So you have a lot of farm workers that, that you know, this is the month when we start our season, uh, don't have work. And so the the agricultural season in the Salinas Valley is is basically, you know, from March to, to, to November. 
and many workers are not going to be able to start in, in March uh, because the crops have been washed out. And so build on top of that, that, you know, agricultural, you know, seasons in our area where workers have to save their money to make sure that they're able to survive the winter now have to face a major challenge of not returning back in the same time period. And and, and especially if they're undocumented, uh, not being able to access uh, unemployment benefits is going to be a major concern. There's going to be a lot of hurt families in, in, in our valley. I know that this is outside the scope of your survey, but I feel we have to talk about it. Not that far north of Monterey County, of course, is Half Moon Bay, where there was a mass shooting at two mushroom farms. Do you have a sense of how your union members are processing that collective trauma and what hurdles do they face in getting mental health help? Well, at, at, at the end of it, you know, we face a lot of mental health you know, challenges in, in our community as a whole. And one of the major challenges that we have is that, you know, your farm workers, uh, just don't want to address mental health issues. And, and you know, the Half Moon Bay incident is a really good example, you know, worksite violence. And and if and if workers don't feel like, you know, they don't even have insurance to access a mental health professional, and also with the lack of services and providers in the rural communities that our study pointed out, it, it shows that, you know, there's a lot of issues around mental health that need to be addressed in general, but especially in the farm working community where you're at a high stress job, where it's very physical, uh, it's very demanding, and so many farm workers live in agricultural housing there on on the growers' property or you know live near each other, that it's it's even a, a challenge, and that you know agricultural workers with all the challenges that they have and having you know mental health issues and not being able to access the support or not even realize that it's that, that it is a problem is a major concern and you know it needs to be addressed in all industries but in particular you know what this study pointed out is that there's a lack of of health insurance which means there's a lack of mental health uh, access points edward Caesar touched upon the the, the lower self reporting rates for that sort of thing. Your study touched upon a thing called the Latino paradox. Generally speaking, let me know if I get this wrong, farm workers have lower rates of self-reported chronic illnesses than the general Latino population in California. Can you give us some more context to this, why it exists? So uh, historically, um, uh, in the past few decades, Latino uh, um, studies of health um, have suggested that Latino immigrants arrive with um, better health than uh, that of um, their native-born counterparts. Um, and agriculture is a very um, a demanding job. Um, most people who are not in very good health, uh, you know, don't work as long as those who are in better health. So there's a selective, a selective population. When we're interviewing farm workers about their health, this is a selective population. What we expect to find are, um, given the demographics of the population and uh, how demanding the job is, um, we would be expecting to find a population that has, um, you know, average or better than average health. What the report showed us was that there was a high rate of workers who had at least one or more chronic conditions between a third to nearly half. Um, and so this included hypertension, diabetes, depression, anxiety, asthma, just to name a few. So the problems are there. They're just historically underreported. <clears throat> yes. And 
Oh, Edward, I'm um, sorry. I think we're losing your Zoom. Uh, you're, you're breaking up there. Edward Flores, faculty director of UC Merced's Community and Labor Center, which conducted the study, and Cesar Lara, executive director of the Monterey Bay Central Labor Council. Thank you both for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Still ahead, Hey Listen host Nick Bruner and CAP Radio's Andrew Garcia stop by to share their picks of artists performing in Sacramento that you won't want to miss. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, and we're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty for Vicki Gonzalez. Hey, it's almost the weekend. A perfect time to hear music from Sacramento's thriving music scene. In any given month, there are many fantastic local performances throughout the region, and that makes it a challenge to narrow down which new or established artists to check out. Cap Radio's modern music hosts put their ear to the grindstone. Ouch. And they are in studio to share their, that's got to be painful, to share their top picks of shows to check out for the next two weeks. Cap Radio's host of Hey and Listen, Nick Bruner, and Andrew Garcia, host of Music and News. Thanks for joining us, guys. Oh, thank you, Mike, especially hey, since Mike. Uh, we grew our ears back just now yes. from all that grindstoning <laughs> we've been doing. Ouch. So as curators of modern music, you both showcase local talent and began sharing a segment on Cap Radio's Instagram about local concerts to check out. Why was it important to highlight local artists in their upcoming concerts? Well, I mean, I'll take this one, Andrew, if that's cool with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think um, so often it's uh, it, it's our duty here at, at, at this radio station to uh, get into the community and showcase local talent because they live here, they work here, they are here, they make this a more interesting place to, to live and to be. Uh, in most of our cases, I think, um, these are artists that are passing through, at least the tracks you're about to hear, but there's often a local contingent that's opening for these uh, bands. But, man, we have a fantastic local music scene uh here in Sacramento, and every opportunity that I can get to stick them on Hey Listen or talk about them online, I, I, I take. Andrew, anything to add? Well, I mean, I think, you know, live music, like most industries and people, took a beating during the pandemic. So I think with this, mm. helping to help live music get back out there and get back in, you know, everybody's sort of um, routine of, of weekends, of going out to check out new bands in particular, I think, uh, is a service that we can provide. So what's the criteria? What does it take to make the cut for you to recommend that people spend their time and money? <laughs> I t- uh, you, you, you take this one. <laughs> I, uh, well, I hope to uh, highlight artists not only that make great music, but also like our very good live performers and, and music that I think the live sort of venue uh, being with people and hearing them uh, sort of the the DBs pounding in your chest uh, okay. benefit from. And so that's that's what I tend to like to pick. Absolutely agree with Andrew. Uh, I like to spotlight just like with uh, Hey Listen, underheard artists that I think need more exposure. Okay. And in many cases, uh, just bands that have been going and going and going and you know, just have a dedicated road dog indie cred. I was going to ask how yeah. much how much of this are people that you're like, 
I've been listening to these guys forever. What's it going to take? And how much of it is first listen? Oh, my God, this is huge. Well, let's find out. Okay. So, Andrew, <laughs> your first pick is Kepi Gooley, mm-hmm. who's performing with Hutch Harris in the Starlet Room at Harlow's on February 14th. He's been performing with the Groovy Ghoulies in Sacramento since the 80s. Can you describe his sound and what people listening expect if they attend the performance? Is it those DBs pounding in the chest? It is indeed. Punk rock uh, at its finest, really. I I mean, (laughs) performing with the Groovy Ghoulies since about the 80s, that that group is no longer around, sadly. But they've been keeping that 80s punk rock rock vibe going Mm -hmm. for a while. Think like The Clash. Uh, Iggy Pop, the Ramones, stuff like that. And so has been doing his solo career uh, and keeping that that punk rock flavor alive. At Harlow's on the 14th, would you recommend it as a Valentine's date? I would 100%. I I mean, uh, it's very hard to get a reservation on Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. So I recommend folks pitch to their partner or their significant other, grab some pizza, grab a ticket to the show, dance the night away. Let's take a listen now to Kepi Gooley's cover of David Bowie's Heroes. I like it. I'm glad you do. It's quite well, good. little additional tempo to what Bowie gave us. Yeah, popping it up, you yeah. know, bring it into the sort of punk rock vibe. And I should mention this show is also for uh, featuring Hutch Harris, formerly of the punk rock group The Thermals. And so mm. this show is really a two for one. Okay, Harlow's on the 14th. Now, Nick, your pick mm. is the Los Angeles-based rapper and comedian Open Mike Eagle. He's performing February 18th with Video Dave, Bay Good, and Space, is it? Is oh, yeah. Bay, Bay God and Space are a Sacramento production powerhouse, two okay. different producers that'll be performing. And then, yeah, Video Dave and Open Mic Eagle. Uh, this is a rescheduled show from earlier in January. Uh, it's happening on the 19th at the Starlet Room. And, yeah, what I love about Open Mic is that he is such a renaissance man. You mentioned comedian as well as rapper. He's a podcast host. Uh, he's just an all-around affable presence behind the microphone in everything that he does. Now, he has has songs with hip-hop icon MF Doom. I'm not sure I can say that on public radio. And he describes his music as art rap. Can you unpack what that means and describe the sound? Uh, well, you know, I sort of abandoned trying to unpack genres uh, long ago when uh, genres became subgenres of subgenres of subgenres. I've kind of just started, I don't know if I'm just settling into uh, middle age, or, or, or <laughs> but it's just sort of like, if I like this, if he tells me it's art rap, I believe him. Okay. So what we're about to hear is indeed art rap. I okay. think it's it's got like sort of an indie rock kind of aesthetic to it. It's just, it's... Yeah, well, you'll hear it. This yeah. is a track. O- uh, Open Mike Eagle. It's from his 2022 album, Component System with the Auto Reverse. Mm. I'm old enough to know what that means. And the song is 79th and Stony Island. I used to stand on the phone book, the turnover off the no look. Shook them cold as a ghost foot. I used to cry when I wrote hooks. Where's the dry in my notebook? 
everything's high octane. I like to hide in the quad train, sell it behind on the blockchain. But no keys fit the keyhole, pick up the team like a veto. Tall, we big as a beam pole. I see the checklist, we done several. You made a spoon out of gunmetal. I picked the daisy to one pedal. And do they love me? You love me not? I got the ends, I'm unsettled. I made a wish on the dishwater. I want a nap and a big offer. I love rap, it's a bit of. Not that it means anything coming from me, but that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it means everything coming from Mike Haggerty. Uh, well, I love Open Mike's flow. I love his references. They're both niche and universal. Uh, he's got deep cuts from uh, everything from the Golden Girls to a nod to NPR's Tiny Desk on huh. this new record. And it's it, that barely scratches the surface. Very wow. literate, very funny, very good. Okay, so Andrew, back to DBs in the mm-hmm. chest. This next band with an incredible name. That sounds like it might be what you were talking about. <laughs> Bass Drum of Death. Yes. They are playing February 22nd at the Goldfield Trading Post in Midtown. Bass Drum of Death is described as bluesy rock duo from Mississippi. But how would you describe their sound? And what are some other artists that maybe people could put it into context by knowing? I keep coming back to the word scuzzy. It's, <laughs> it's a, you know, a bit grimy, fuzzy, uh-huh. distorted, really swampy, really. You can okay. feel the humidity of Mississippi, I feel mm. like, when you listen to Bass Drum of Death. And I think the most sort of mainstream comparison point I can think of is the Black Keys. Okay. And they've had like a similar trajectory of sound, blues, rock, roots uh, starting out. And then as they've evolved, adding on more different varied production elements, different uh, inspiration from different genres. Uh, both bands also quite good. Okay, so let's take a listen to Say Your Prayers from Bass Drum of Death's latest album, Say I Won't. And because my son, who is also named Andrew, got me a Black Keys CD for my birthday about 12 years ago, saying, we really need to get you out of Steely Dan. I actually have context for Bass Drum of Death. There you go. I understand that sound. There's, of course, nothing wrong with uh, a good bit of Steely Dan, but I hope to see you at the show, Mike, in the mosh pit, bouncing around. Uh, It's going to be a good one. Yeah, mosh pit. Um, So, Nick, I get the feeling. (laughs) So, Nick, quickly. uh, I get the feeling that Harlow's has plenty of great artists coming Mm. through the Starlet Room, and this next artist, Quasi, is it Quasi or Quasi? Uh, I always pronounce it Quasi. Quasi. Mm is also playing the venue February 26th. This is a Portland-based duo. They're steadily releasing singles on the iconic indie label Sub Pop. Mm -hmm. But what about their new music is exciting to your ears? You know, I think it's become uh, just tighter and... uh, I. I just, I've, I've always liked Quasi. I think it's the consistency that they have put out since their first record. They released their first album in 1997, and by 1998, wow. they kind of sort of found themselves. And I feel like they've been in like a really good rut's not the right word. What happens? Mm-hmm. Like, what's, what's, what's a positive groove? version of the word? There you go, groove. Let's just let's go with groove. They, they, they are, they're excellent. They're, uh, again, I, I get drawn to bands with witty lyrics and mm-hmm. uh, who are kind of snide and uh, <laughs> in, in, insightful. 
And uh, that's one of the reasons that I, I continue to, to seek out Quasi. Well, 25 years in, any band that's not running out of gas is already remarkable. And if these guys are hitting a stride, that's great. If any band deserves a larger profile, I really think it's them, just given their indie rock cred. Uh, Sam Coombs, he's worked with Built to Spill and Elliott Smith. Their drummer and vocalist Janet Weiss is probably best known as a founding member of Oregon power trio Slater Kinney. And she's worked with just about everybody in indie rock. So these two together, mm, So let's hear Quasi and a bit of Queen of Ears. They're dirty bathrooms and casual disarray. Recall to your mind the comforts of home. And I, I float above it all. Wizard of idleness, mistress of. Oh, those are all great song selections, and I'm sure we're all in for a great treat at every one of those appearances. Nick Brunner, uh, host of Hey Listen, Cap Radio's modern music discovery program, and Andrew Garcia, host of News and Music. Thank you both for being with us this morning. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You can learn more about these musical acts on Cap Radio's Instagram account and on Hey Listen, which airs Saturdays from 3 to 5 and again from 8 to 10 p.m. Thanks for joining us and sharing your picks, guys. That's Insight for today. Learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to join the information, email us, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobas and Victor Corral Martinez with managing editor Aram Sarkissian. Our digital producers are Megan Minata, Chris Hagen, Emily Zentner, and Helga Salinas. Insight's technical directors, Mark Jones. Our engineer is Antonio Muniz and Chris Feltz. And our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Mike Haggerty. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here on Monday.